HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Welcome back to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. I'm Wythe Marshall, as always, joined by... Hi, I'm Melissa Metric. And our amazing studio engineer, Liam Warner. Uh, Hey, Liam. And we are here in season four in 2023, late 2023. Lots of stuff going on. Uh, It's fall, finally, here in New York City. And Melissa, you're back on the farm. Uh, and I am uh, back trolling the internet, reading about indoor farming, um, as are you this week. So, uh, you know, there's, there's various things to discuss, but I take it one topic that we're both interested in is what's going on with specifically sort of high-tech urban indoor ag. So uh, maybe that's, that's something we will discuss today. Yeah. So, um, Blythe, I know that you study this topic. Um, you study this topic a lot, um, and you've done a lot of research on it. Um, so what have you noticed recently going on with indoor agriculture, especially when it comes to finances and what is actually happening to these businesses in 2022, 2023? Right. In 2022, 2023, um, you could say that a long predicted uh, correction to the market, to use economic speak, has happened where the very high tech farms that took out a lot of venture capital um, to cover their capital costs and now their operating costs uh, have run out of runway. So they, they no longer can raise enough money to keep going. And many of them, perhaps all of them, are not really um, revenue positive. They're not really making money selling lettuce that is grown in a very, very expensive way or baby greens. 
Um, there's a question about berries. Maybe that is um, one way to go that you can make more money uh, because they're sort of more premium. But yeah, for a lot of the farms that are growing lettuce, they're, they're going out of business. Yeah. Yeah. So can we say that the indoor farming kind of tech bubble is bursting? Yeah, yeah. That would be like a colloquial summary of um, some of these farms are running out of money. Some some have not uh, clearly, um, and this was, again, something people have been saying for a while, the model of treating lettuce growing and other baby greens as like a tech startup doesn't make a ton of sense. Like it doesn't make sense sort of common sense wise. And it also turns out, of course, it doesn't make a ton of sense financially because uh, tech companies... Uh, operate very differently. And it, it, to some degree, um, you're up against all kinds of issues here. So we can kind of walk through them. Um, you and I were just talking about a couple good articles uh, over the last year that have sort of described the the fall of some of these these firms, but um, they, they share some features in common. And at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's just hard to make that much money uh, selling lots and lots of lettuce. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I was reading in this article um, from Fast Company that pretty much is like, is the indoor farming bubble bursting or whatever, like that's kind of pretty much what the title is. Um, and they were just talking about, A, in the beginning, that a lot of um, a lot of the investors of these companies are, um, they come from a tech background. And so it is a sense of like, A, how expensive is it to actually build these facilities? And if they cost millions, millions of dollars, and also if each company um, touts that they're going to build their own software, how expensive is that going to be if they're building all of their own software, all of their own new um, technologies and things like that? And also just coming from not a food producing like economy, or, or like thinking of it economically as producing food, but thinking of it economically as a tech startup, which growing food is very different, especially in making money via a tech startup, right? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, you raise a lot of questions. I, I think that's um, one of the issues is, is not just the investors. It's not like investors are creating this uh, bubble so much as um, people are who are boosters, as we might call them in the history and anthropology of tech, are saying we have a tech solution for something in society that's a real problem. So, um, you know, people feel in the United States there's an opportunity to grow and sell more sort of high value um, produce that tastes better, that's fresher, that's grown in a more sustainable way, yada, yada, yada. Uh, well, I have this technological solution and they're creating an, an, an ecosystem where there are investors who might say, yeah, I'll, you know, put some chips on that on that bet, right? I'll, I'll see if this pans out. Um, and a lot of investors put a lot of money for a long enough time where there are now, you know, several of these companies were really, really big in terms of um, high-tech farms in the US, uh, which was not, you know, up to, up to this point, a sector really. Um, and uh, farming in the US has mostly been, you know, outdoor, not as high-tech. So there are places in the world where indoor is more common, although almost all greenhouse. But it w in this case, we're talking about a mix of high-tech greenhouses using computers and trying to adjust sort of settings so that greenhouses are really maximizing you know, heat and light, but also sunless farms, vert indoor vertical farms where uh, you're, you're having to spend a ton of money on lights, for example, so really high capital costs just to get started and then really high operational costs to keep going to give the plants enough lights and to dehumidify and lower the temperature enough because it gets really stuffy um, to, to keep them happy. 
uh, and all kinds of other other issues that you have to learn about because that's not how most farming is done. So you're creating problems that you have to solve and become an expert at you know solving these new things. So yeah, there there were investors who were excited. There were a lot of people telling stories to the investors, and at the end of the day, um, there were there have been critics. Uh, all along. And there have been people um, like me who are trying to be very, very neutral and just interested in, okay, well, what if we need technologies like this in the future as a species? Or what if they're appropriate applications? Or, um, you know, are there better and worse cases of using these technologies, right? And there's different kinds of technologies. So there, there's all kinds of sort of sub questions there. But yeah, yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, um, there's a lot of hype. So a lot of money pours in. And a lot of these farms get built that are extremely costly to build, one, and then they're extremely costly to keep going. And the question was always sort of like, okay, but at some point, do this do the curves work out, right? Do they make enough high value greens and sell them at a good enough price point to enough consumers? Because you know America's getting better about food, we're, we're eating better, whatever. Uh, we've re, we we passed you know peak, um, absolute terrible food at some point culturally, or that's that's something that like Instagram and Netflix tell me, right? Like I don't know, you know, there's different ways to measure that as a social scientist, but you could you could argue that ten years ago you could say, okay, well. Maybe there'll be a point when, you know, um, different kinds of more environmentally sustainable, healthier farming uh, make more money. And this sector is really even younger than that. So most of these companies are dating back to around 2016. So, um, you know, it's been a few years, but it hasn't been that that long. And there is this question um, of, you know, whether we're seeing a correction that, that spells the end of something or sort of... Um, a dying off of a bunch of failures and then some companies will kind of make it and you'll see some of them kind of figure it out. And yeah, they'll eventually kind of break, break even and then start to make money. Um, I don't, you know, again, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah. And that's what I've like read in some of these articles, like maybe this is a quote unquote pruning of companies. Like right now there's so many different indoor ag tech companies that like, and there are so many investors that you know, maybe there's too many. And so maybe this is just like a literal, like, quote unquote, like pruning out of, of these companies. Um, but another thing that, that like, well, just things that you're bringing up in general is a, when you're farming outdoors, you have a lot cheaper lands, you have a lot cheaper labor, um, and you don't need that much energy granted with outdoor farms. You do use energy if you're using tractors and all of these other things, but you don't need energy from the sun, right? Like you don't need energy for light. Um, and in this article that I was reading on Fast Company, they were talking about, I think Eric Stein from Penn State University was was just saying that um, plants require five to 10 more times the light than humans do. So if you think about like when we're indoors and when, when we have lights, they're just like whatever lights, but the energy for five to 10 times that um, is kind of crazy. And also the sense of, you know, in, in the folks that are getting involved in this, A, have they ever grown anything in their lives when they're starting these companies? Um, B, like they say there's like, there's going to be a cut in labor because they could use robotics and all these other things, but are you going to have CEOs and are you going to have people who are taking care of these robotics that are going to have very high salaries. So you could have, you know, 20 people with not being paid that much, or you could have one person with a very high salary that is part of the administration, where if if you think about like other farms and, and like how this food system works, most of the time you don't have like a CEO and all these other people um, that are, you know, that you're paying so much money for um, to run, to, to grow lettuce. Does 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think again, you're you know, there's a lot of different companies. Um, even in, you know, you're, we're talking about one article from earlier in the year by Adele Peters and Fast Company, and she's been covering the industry for a while as a journalist um, and writing up some good reviews. And there's there's some people we, we've spoken to. I mean, I've spoken to Eric Stein, um, and a lot of this article is relying on, for example, Henry Gordon Smith, who's a really uh, yeah. smart guy and a friend, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, you get a sense from this article even, and, and others like it. I mean, I probably read about 50 of these today, kind of trolling the internet, trying to see, okay, how has the coverage been of this quote-unquote bubble burst or collect, correction and I think, um, you know, you have companies that were um, driven more or less by people who had more or less growing experience, but all of them were hiring very senior growers with great, you know, bona fides uh, at some point. The question is, um, you know, who who's making certain key decisions uh, and what about other other issues? So, that, you know, as, as Peters points out in this article, there's a lot of administrative bloat in some cases, like App Harvest ends up having to pay seven million out of 10 million when two executives get fired which really hamstrings them in terms of their ability to kind of um continue to operate when they're not bringing in as much revenue as they'd hoped and costs are kind of high uh and you know maybe they could survive maybe they couldn't but with things like that make it kind of impossible right so that's yeah. not a farming decision so yeah. some of the, some of it is farming related and some of it i think as as some of these articles are pointing out is about other kinds of decisions these companies are making. I think one thing from a sort of anthro of tech perspective that links them is they're not really thinking of themselves as farms per se, even though they are, like they effectively are places, big buildings growing food and selling food, but they're pitching themselves to investors as tech companies, as companies that will generate IP, patentable technologies. And one of the many issues there, and this is pointed out again, I think Henry Gordon Smith says in this article, and we should have him on the show and ask him, a little more about this, but some of the companies try that and then they can't really come up with anything good or better. And so they end up buying, you know, on the market already tech, you know, lights, we're talking about lights, software that controls the farms, whatever it is. Um, and at the end of the day, they're not really good tech companies. So whether or not they're good at farms, they've gotten crazy amounts of money. They're spending crazy amounts of money as though they're going to sell hardware or software, which investors in California, you know, investors in New York might be sort of more familiar with. They're, the idea that you would somehow grow enough lettuce and sell enough lettuce to make those kinds of profits um, for, from the farm perspective. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And I think, you know, Eric Stein has a good quote in here saying, you know, yeah, a good farm might make, you know, 25%, 50%, you know, margin, you know, um, and, and these investors are looking for at least a hundred percent, right. They want to yeah. double their money. Yeah. So that's just a, there's a, that's what I'm saying is there's a fundamental gap in how people are conceiving of a farm quote unquote, that is super high tech IP based kind of company mm -hmm. worth half a billion dollars versus you know okay how how does um a site a, a piece of land grow a lot of food over time that's sustainable and, and pay its employees and it's not to say again that there's no role for these technologies um it just might be that the cases we've seen so far the really well capitalized ones in the u.s aren't the right aren't the right examples yeah and it's just like um if we look at the entire food system and you know we were just talking to folks about the the farm bill um at, at the Young Farmers um, and the Young Farmers Coalition. Yeah. Um, but, sorry. Um, but if you look at the price of food and how much, um, you know, the United States tries to keep the price of food down and then you have companies selling lettuce, which you mentioned before, which is such a like low priced food in general. It's like, yes, if we did berries, like, you know, if Oishi berries are 
really expensive, but compared to what they first were and their price mark now, which has gone down, which is still really expensive. Um, but, but the other aspect is like, where are these, where do these indoor farms make sense? These indoor like tech company farms make sense. And, and a lot of that is in the middle East because you cannot grow outside. Right. So, you know, maybe the value and folks are used to paying higher for that produce just because they can't, they can't grow it there. Um, and so are we going to get to a point here in the United States where it does make sense and people will actually pay higher or there will be actual, you know, more, um, uh, what is it called? Um, like how, how are like more subsidies for indoor farms? I don't even know if that would happen. Um, so that it would actually, we can make this price cheap, but these farms don't go out of business. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the long-term, I mean, that's the, always this question of, um, technologies being agnostic and how, how do we want to use them? When are they appropriate to use or socially good? When are they liberatory versus when are they tools of oppression, you know, and, and enforcing, you know, class stratification and sort of harming workers and, and consumers. And in this case, the idea, a priori, the idea of using less water, um, you know, avoiding to a large degree um, bacterial contamination and having high quality, like really tasty produce sounds good. And maybe even if it's not everything, but it's just one option, you know, it's some percentage of kind of higher end um, greens. You know, it sounds kind of not too scary, but right to your point. I mean, if you're competing, you're not just competing with California, you're competing with like upstate New York in the, in the New York City, New Jersey, greater area, right? The tri-state area. Um, there's plenty of good land, not that far from the city. So it's not even like, oh, that's been on a truck for a week from the Central Valley in California. It's like something, you know, you could, the competitors to some of these products um, have been on a truck for just a few hours yeah. from upstate and, and it's perfectly good food. It, it Again, it's costing a little more than the stuff from California maybe, but it's um, maybe it's sustainably grown, maybe, maybe not, but you know, again, there's a, there's already a lot of options out there. So I think from the American perspective, to your point, um, it was always a tough sell. And I think we found that, yeah, it's a lot easier with a luxury product, something like strawberries. People want this perfect, really bold flavor. They want it to look a certain way. With lettuce, I mean, eh, people put it on a burger or whatever. It's it's sort of like, obviously, some companies, um, and, 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 and it is curious, and it's something we've looked into a bit, you know, how do different companies position their products as like different um it, it just ends up being difficult i think a lot of greens um that the claims they're making tend to be viewed um across the the category right so like the pesticide free if they're if they're all saying that um the fully sunless farms are using almost no or no pesticides um even compared to greenhouse you know that's better it still doesn't really differentiate your specific brand so that comes down to you know, how well your business is managed. And some of them obviously are managed better than others. But I think to your point in the long run, yeah, maybe in the US, there's more of a place um, due to climate disruption, due to someone figuring out um, some ways that these technologies can be put to, to use more efficiently. I think in the near term, you might just see people really, hopefully investors don't throw out baby and bathwater in terms of like greenhouses, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of other technologies, season extensions, yeah. you know, can involve all kinds of tech that isn't so high tech that it requires the Silicon Valley money. Well, you know yeah. I mean? And that's the other question. It's like, you know, how long have we had low tech greenhouses? You know, if you look at certain regions in the world, they get all of their tomatoes from greenhouses and, you know, like Amsterdam or, or where you've been to these places um, where they weren't using high tech. 
and they only have like one person managing the farm. So it's like, you know, why are we, why are we reinventing the wheel? Um, but the other thing that I kind of wanted to discuss are companies that have been working that I don't know if they would consider themselves like an indoor um, tech farm, but I think about Smallholds. And I think at first they started selling their technology. So they actually started selling these small farms to places. So they were actually selling that technology. And now it's strange that it they're, they're selling more their product. So now they're selling mushrooms Um, And they're probably still selling these like smaller farms and stuff, but it seems like they just got a bunch of investors, but they're also selling something that, you know, I feel like, like if anybody wanted to, they could probably figure out how to grow lettuce. And, And honestly, if anybody wanted to, they could probably figure out how to grow mushrooms too. I teach classes about it. Um, but they also have this more niche product, right? And, and not only like a, a niche product, which is mushrooms, but a like niche, niche variety product of mushrooms. So it's like, you know, oyster mushrooms and lion's mane and trumpet mushrooms and all these different things that they're selling instead of just a regular, you know, um, button or Bella mushrooms that are grown indoors also. So it's it's just kind of interesting to see the companies that are right now, quote unquote, like like doing good and, and expanding and who knows what's going to happen with them. But I don't know. I just find it interesting that they initially started by selling their technologies and how now they're they're selling their or they're doing a multitude of things. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think they were selling mushrooms, but right. They were kind of branding on having this kind of cool grow environment in a in you know co-branded with a with a restaurant or or a bar or some other kind of space a hotel um whereas now they're focused on you know they have farms basically they have they have distributed farms that they run and then they're just mainly selling the product into into retail um and and that makes sense retail is a bigger opportunity than restaurants um and more stable uh so that's also just a growth you know maturity thing but I think it's a good example of, of like I'm saying, there's this whole spectrum of technologies and there's different use cases. And then within those, there's kind of better and worse management. And I think uh, Smallhold's a good example of like innovation. They're growing the niche. You know, they're making it like it's not niche in Asia to eat oyster mushrooms. So they're making it more normal by having yeah. more available at a higher quality at a good price point in trusted retail outlets like Whole Foods, where people are already kind of expecting to see decent quality produce um and then okay oh wow this is like super super fresh it's being grown here okay yeah i can i'll try that um and so to some degree you know that that's a well-managed company using a a suite of technologies seemingly appropriately seemingly with the right amount um you know we've kind of followed them from the beginning we know some of them personally the founders and it's it's like they seem to have scaled up correctly they've taken investment but they never were like hey we need half a billion dollars like in a year i mean that's just that's a lot of money, yeah. right? They've taken yeah. like millions, but that's to open, you know, a big farm in LA or whatever. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think some of it, again, is, is is that question. To your point about like in in the Netherlands, I mean, you do see successful farms that are very high tech, Venlo style greenhouses with a lot of computerized lighting systems and whatnot. And you see farms that are um, similar structures, but but really low tech, not, e- not using soil free technologies, but using soil just in, you know, a greenhouse environment. Um, especially, you know, for growing things like uh, potatoes, but also greens. And a lot of those companies are also well-run. A lot of them, um, the staff have been, they're coming from families where that's a tradition of growing in greenhouses now for several generations. 
Um, and they do have tight relationships with the government, the university system. So there's this idea of a kind of nationalized system of making sure agriculture is very productive and safe and they're feeding Europe and have this kind of um, reputation to uphold culturally in that sector, um, which is just beginning to be something that, you know, in the U.S., people are, are uh, talking about in the sense of like, there aren't a ton of schools here, right? Where mm-hmm. you can study this stuff. There aren't a yeah. lot of investors who know, there aren't a lot of government agents who specifically know about this kind of tech. Although the USDA is not very big, right? But most of USDA is focused on field crops, right? They're not really thinking about greenhouse and, and fully selling those farms. So that's been an issue of kind of catching up. But again, I think um, it's not to say everything in the Netherlands has always worked out. It's just that over time, mm-hmm. right? They found use cases um, and they've had some notable disasters, especially with the more innovative models like, um, a well-meaning, you know, pharma in the old Phillips building in The Hague where uh, they couldn't really make enough money selling fish and uh, greens that were grown grown together, you know, an aquaculture system. Um, and they had to shut down. And, it, and the CEO wrote a big post on LinkedIn sort of explaining why he thought that was. And a lot of it was kind of, again, the boring business stuff. So I think that's one theme is like the boring business stuff. Another is like different kinds of appropriate technologies. And I think those together give you a sense that the real innovations here, it's less about some sort of silver bullet technology as usual with these things, because technology tends to advance usually pretty incrementally. You can find some cases that, you know, it's like, wow, okay, the printing press was a big deal or whatever. But um, even that, you know, there were presses before it. But with a lot of this stuff, it's more the innovation around the business and the innovation around some sort of opportunity, which is in an ecosystem of investment and also sort of consumer culture. And I think with Smallhold, that's a good example of um, a couple people identifying the idea that maybe we can do something with, you know, specialty mushrooms in the U.S. There's more of an opportunity there um, and learning enough about it and running the business well that they were able to capitalize on that opportunity. So, yes, anyone, I mean, anyone can grow any of these things, but turning it into a multi-million dollar business takes some level of both dedication, but also I, I think it's less about necessarily reinventing, you know, technology and more like figuring out, okay, how do I, um, how do I sell this to folks? And if you look, some of the farms that seem to be doing similar things that are doing okay would be like Bowery farming, also New York, which is gigantic, um, and is seemingly doing all right. I mean, they have a partnership, you know, they, they tripled their partnership with Amazon in July. Um, and they started collaborating with Sweet Green back in March. Yeah, wow. Uh, and they're compared, you know, to favorably to some of these other companies. We don't know their cash flow. They could go under next year. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that as of right now, um, also Plenty based in San Francisco and Wyoming, which arguably has spent a lot of money on some of these farms and, and is facing some of the same long-term issues with the cash flow. Right now they seem to be doing okay, I think. Uh, so I think without, you know, I, I hadn't checked all of them. Um, I wasn't able to <laughs> check all of them before we started taping, but I, I get the sense that it's it's kind of a question in some cases of... Um, of generally where the economy is headed and what mm-hmm. like people are going to eat and how well you're generally running a business and less kind of like, oh, there's just never a, a use for this. It does feel like some of these farms are really overbuilt. Reading through the Sidel Peters piece, it is kind of funny to read about. I mean, farms costing in the hundreds of millions to build just yeah. seems like, how are you going to make money, buddy? Yeah. You're selling, you know, you're selling trays of lettuce. You spent a hundred billion do- well, or hundred yeah. million dollars. Or in, like you're selling a, a warehouse. Yeah. You're, you're, you're using like $240 million to start up and then you're only going to sell 7 million per year. Like what? I don't know. It's just, it just is kind of crazy to me. But on another thing, um, kind of what we were mentioning is, uh, you know, throughout all of this is the product that you're selling and how much can you sell it for? So um, hopefully what we'll cover in a future episode 
is also indoor growing for um, for materials to make clothing. And I'm wondering if, right. you know, so like the new thing with mycelium to make leather um, and how that could be a high end kind of fashion thing. And then, you know, you could actually probably make a decent amount of money for it. Um, and another thing that um, I'm going to mention this really quickly and uh, we should have her on again, but I was just hanging out with our old co-host Ellie Wist and um, she's studying microplastics right now that is found in water, especially our tap water. And she was talking to folks of like, where are these microplastics come from? And it seems like a lot of microplastics actually come from clothing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, maybe that's a good thing if, if a lot of our clothing is, you know, made with more organics via mycelium or whatever. Can we grow cotton inside? Uh, I don't know if people... <laughs> that really makes sense but but you know but just like the mycelium thing and 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 high-end fashion and all this other stuff so that's an another thing to kind of think about with this like indoor growing this episode is brought to you by wisconsin cheese there's a reason when you think of wisconsin you think cheese cheese is a huge part of wisconsin's history and future in wisconsin the state of cheese The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Well, I think you're you're turning from um, the production of whole foods to, um, you know, biomanufacturing broadly construed which there's a kind of Venn diagram from agriculture as a sector to the kinds of things we associate with the production of medicines. Um, but also there's certain other food products that are grown basically as slurries in a very high tech, mm-hmm. you know, stainless steel giant like tank yeah. by contract manufacturing organizations, CMOs. Um, and on their pathway to get to the CMOs, they go through CROs, contract research organizations, which grow them in smaller, but similar, you know, bioreactor environments where they're trying to very, 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 very fine-tuned way to understand, like, inputs and outputs mm-hmm. of a system, um, which, you know, is how we get certain products that we need. A lot of medicines, again, are, are kind of, I don't know how people think they're made, but they're at the end of the day, they're coming from essentially, you know, synthetic chemicals or they're grown by, you know, bacteria or yeast, right? Um, and uh, we can think about more and more kinds of foods grown that way and also materials and to your point, mycelium, mushroom mycelium, the kind of root structure that has these amazing properties. It's a chitin that can be compressed. It can be made in a sort of plywood or it can be made in a kind of leather. It's really cool and it's very cheap. It grows on essentially waste. It can grow in like sawdust, ag waste, coffee grounds, that kind of thing. Um, and there are companies um, like Ecovative and others who've been experimenting with this and commercializing it. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the, the differences, the key differences is like you, you have to think about the pathway toward boring. You know, and, and once something is boring, it's like clearly making money. It's been around long enough where there's companies just doing it. It's part of our industrial modernity, you know, our, our culture. Um, whereas when we're thinking about it and we're arguing about like, oh, will this ever work? It's not boring yet. So I think yeah. vertical farms, 
kind of are still in a phase of like not being boring, probably in a bad way. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're spending a lot of money, not growing a lot of food that people are spending enough to eat. Whereas some of those, um, those other industries, you know, they, they, maybe, maybe you will see a quiet revolution in materials to your point, mm-hmm. um, where more sustainable materials more quickly become boring because it really is about substituting something that you never really think about, right? Some kind of cloth, some material you're substituting out, you know, something made from petrol for something that is made from mushrooms or uh, seaweed or something like that. Right. And that seems really cool, but also is not going to, if you even think about the story to an investor, it's about um, business to business mm-hmm. opportunities. Whereas here with the vertical farms, you're thinking about business to consumers. In many cases, you're thinking about trying to sell people the the consumer out there with all the spending power on the idea of doing something good for the environment by buying this lettuce versus this other lettuce. Um, so they're kind of similar, but I think there's some key differences in terms of um, where these different industries are at. And I don't know enough about, for example, like mycelial leather to say like how, how, where we are in that spectrum. I get the sense that's still pretty far off from like making yeah. a ton of money, but it's a really cool idea. I think, I think it makes total sense. Um, and I do worry, one of my biggest worries about the collapse of vertical farming, um, if I'm honest, is the perception, you know, is that, is that normal people, investors, politicians, scientists at USDA, people who have some say in these matters would would turn away from this stuff and say, ah, that kind of futurism, that vision of the future of controlling the environment really in a tight way um, is just, you know, dumb, right? And I, and I think, again, it, it some of it is um, a real, is it problematic? It's like aligned with that metaphor of controlling the world that leads to like colonialism. Mm-hmm. But I think some of it to, to questions you've asked before is probably necessary given serious climate disruptions we're facing. And so, um, you know, is, is there a way that we can figure out good uses of these technologies? And to your point, what about those Venn diagram cases? You know, what else can you grow indoors and control that's, that's a living thing that could be uh, much more sustainable and, and have a lot of benefits? So I don't know. I hope there's still a lot of like interest in the bioeconomy, but this, these things have gone up and down so much, um, since I, you know, for the last yeah. 20 years, basically, yeah. it's, it's really hard to say. And, and, and know? I would say I share that same fear because I was, um, I went to a symposium during climate week at the New York Botanical Gardens and they were talking about in a hundred years, um, we are going to go up four degrees. So mm-hmm. right now it's like, what is it? It's 1.5 that we've gone up via, um, via global warming, climate, climate change. And they said within a hundred years, it's going to be four degrees, which yeah. that to me is just like, you know, I, I mean, that, that's just crazy. And I think about all the cool weather crops that I grow and, and where, so, okay, maybe we'll grow them all in Canada or Iceland or, you know, something like that. Um, but I don't know, just, just something that I'm thinking about of, of like the certain crops that need cool weather to grow, like for example, lettuce. Um, so will lettuce really become a cash crop? Yeah. you know, in the future, because you can, you can't actually grow it outside anymore or broccoli or cauliflower or, you know, cabbage or, you know, whatever is in that family and all of these other families or spinach or peas or, you know, so, so I just think about all of these things that, um, or, or can we even grow anything outside anymore when it goes up four degrees? Will we even be here? Probably, you know, like, how are we going to be here? So, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to drop the existential bomb here, but, but like a hundred years from now, you know, uh, my niece just turned two, like, 
I just uh, like, who knows if she'll be around, but so these are just, that's coming very quickly. If I think about 20 years ago and it was like 2003 and I'm like, oh my God, what was I doing? That was 20 years ago, you know? (laughs) So anyway, and and that's just, and I don't mean to do this like, you know, fear mongering, you know, climate change, fear mongering type of thing. But, but when people ask me like how, um, relevant is indoor growing, I do think that, you know, just me being an outdoor grower, I'm going to grow outside as, as much as I can, but I'm not going to want to be out there when it's a month of a hundred degrees. I, I yeah. won't be yeah. out there. And you can't, I mean, there, there's hard limits and we see it already, um, with farm workers, actual IRL yeah. 2023 farm workers, right. And yeah. the heat, the incidences of heat stroke and, and whatever heat exhaustion are or through the roof. And it's, so, you know, there, there's different areas where farming has already changed um, quite a lot in our lifetime and it's been changing. So to answer your question, you know, so the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration says that since um, roughly 1880, um, there's been about a two degree Fahrenheit rise in global annual temperature. So the whole, which is very, very unequally distributed, but if you average it all together, um, but the rate of warming doubled since 1980. So it, it was really, really fast from 1880 to 1980, and then it doubled. Yeah. And so now we're in this period of like intense hellish, you know, it just gets hotter and hotter every year and it's more and more unpredictable, which has um, effects not just in terms of like workers facing heat exhaustion, but also obviously drought uh, and then storms. The intensity of storms gets worse. So flooding in areas that we're not as flood pro- yeah. prone yeah. as we've seen in New York City well, recently. So Yeah, and also just like when we think about climate, that in general is, you know, what what we're used to in a certain region. So it's like when Texas freezes over and it, you know, yeah. never has frozen yeah. over before, um, what's gonna happen to all that citrus or whatever they're like, sorry, whatever their their warm weather crops that they're growing, you know, yeah. or in Florida or in California. Um, when California gets a hurricane <laughs> Sorry, right, not right. funny, but <laughs> right. But it's it's funny in the sense of it's so um, it's hard. It's hard, you know. That's the human reaction to like these things that are so from outer space. You know, it's like wow, what, what can you do? But but kind of laugh at it's. Um, it's like the movie, you know, Don't Look Up. I think really is the best yes. um, cultural artifact we have to date that captures some of the feelings around climate disruption. To your point, I mean, I think this is one of the issues from you know science fiction studies that like it can seem like oh this stuff is all nonsense and we'll never get to some of these points and technologies won't pan out or whatever. But I mean, people have been saying that for a long time. I mean, there are always people, oh, this won't impact my life. This won't impact my life. And I think for millennials, it's it, especially for Marxist millennials, it should just be obvious. It's like, well, this stuff really, really matters, guys. Like we've seen it. We saw the internet uh, give rise to a whole new sector of the economy, right? We've seen agriculture change in our lifetimes if you study ag. Um, and obviously because of the, the rate of change increasing with the literally, even if you just took temperature and you controlled for other things, that would cause, to your point, all these other changes about what crops can be grown where, yeah. for how long, and worker health and all that. So some of it, you know, that that does point to the need for some level of continued investment and research in controlled environment agriculture, indoor growing, which I think will, will happen. And I think a lot of the question is, um, you know, I, I think like, like everything else, it's subservient to this bigger economic system. So currently in the economic system we have on most of Earth that's it's the quote unquote free market. You know, it's the idea that there have to be firms that can make money doing a thing for a thing to exist, basically. And that is the question right now. Can people make money selling high end lettuce grown a very specific way? Can they do it with cannabis? Can they do it with strawberries? Whatever. I think that is a different question from maybe in 20, 50 years, we have a different political economy because of worsening climate disruptions. 
where we no longer have the same free market. Maybe it's yeah. even just, you know, we've moved toward a social democracy with more constraints, more nationalization. And maybe one of the sectors, along with hopefully like healthcare and transportation, that is more nationalized would be agriculture for the simple reason that, again, if we don't have food, we'll all die because we don't have food. So it seems very simple that you would just say, all right, that's an easy one. We should get together and kind of plan out what's going to be um, an effective way to make sure people have food. It does raise the question about like foods we're used to eating if we're willing to pay a certain amount. Yeah. And again, some of that stuff has changed in our lifetime, but it's mostly been controlled for well enough. And I think inflation, which is not, this is not exactly the same, but it's like, this is the first time we're having to feel, oh man, I'm used to paying X for this food and suddenly it's two X. Yeah. And that's just mad annoying. Yeah. Even if I like, even I feel like, oh, I should like, be better than that and just not buy it or whatever. And I'm like, no, like I'm super annoyed. I want to buy like the organic, whatever oat milk, you know? Well, yeah. Um, and, the, and I know I shouldn't be buying milk anymore. Like I know I shouldn't be buying milk, but like grass fed milk is now $10 for a half a gallon. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah, are you yeah. kidding me? But, but with my ethical thing, I'm just like, well, Hey, if I was really ethical, I wouldn't be drinking milk in general, you know, full stop. But <laughs> But yeah, there is no. Yeah. Buts, no, we I still guess. we drink we buy milk and uh, we we buy organic uh, cow milk and and we buy oat milk um, and that's just one. You know, there's so many commodities where we've seen recently fluctuations, which again I think a lot of it's just profiteering. Some of it's real supply chain disruption, but that's not even really the climate stuff we're talking about. And it's certainly most of it's not related to major technological shifts like moving sectors of growing indoors. But I do think that stuff. Is probably coming. Maybe it, you know, maybe it's toward the end of our lifetime. It kind of depends. Like all this stuff depends on big political fluxes that aren't about lettuce. But I, it's funny how you take any of these threads right and pull on them. To me, I think it's fun. It's fun in a, again in a kind of dark way. But as a social scientist, you pull on lettuce, right? And you find these links to kind of Silicon Valley and the imaginaries about the U.S. as this infinite colonial expanse of pastoral wonder where you could just grow whatever you want. You know, yeah. you, you you stumble over something. You're like, oh, that's the biggest turnip I've ever seen. And in reality, yeah, you have hurricanes in California. You have flooding where it's, you know, you just have all these issues to contend with that um, the government has not done a good job of contending with at the federal level. Um, and you and I have been more involved, obviously, with, with state and local efforts um, and more specifically with urban efforts. But across all of U.S. agriculture, and, and I'm sure all of global agriculture, you're going to have more and more of these questions pop up. So, um, yeah, and, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have I don't have a ton of hope in that sense. But yeah, and I know <laughs> I, I know we got to go soon. But another thing yeah, that yeah, I yeah. was thinking about was like, in general, you know, for a couple of generations now, we have been so spoiled that we could get mm -hmm. whatever we want whenever we want. And not saying everybody can, um, but I'm saying in the United States, um, but not even everybody in the United States can afford still food and healthy food, especially. Um, but yeah, in other regions in the world, people still cannot get whatever they want. Um, and so this is, this is coming from my very privileged kind of background of like, oh yeah, I could buy strawberries in the winter if I want. Um, and, and so it's just like this, this interesting thing of like, will folks just have to go back to like, you know, I remember my grandfather or my grandparents would during around Christmas time, somebody would send them oranges because that used to be a delicacy. Um, right. and, and we couldn't get oranges all year long. So, you know, will it just go back to that or with everything that's happening, via climate change, like maybe that won't even be an option. I don't know. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I think we, you know, with regard to any specific commodity or, or cultural experience of food and and growing food, um, it's unpredictable. But right in general, we would assume that given certain trends, you know, you could extrapolate out and say, okay, yeah, some of these things are going to become at least much more expensive, which will in the current system mean that, you know, it's very classed who yeah. gets to drink Arabica coffee or whatever. And you could already argue that, that, again, certain, some of these changes have been happening in the background, but um, we'll, we might see those things worsen. I do think it'd be interesting. Um, I don't know that I've heard of this, but I think something that you and I talk about and we kind of align on in, in a kind of weird, very different way, but it's kind of almost like a prepper mentality. Like maybe we should have more of, you know, create communes, learn these skills, like share, share education around how to grow food. And maybe that means embracing seasonality. And I wonder if we'll see as part of the metabolizing of some of the philosophies that have emerged due to climate disruption. And I'm thinking especially because people gravitated around, you know, the book High Projects, but Tim Morton's work on the ecological thought and the idea of like trying to grasp with these really giant scale phenomena and how does that reshape kind of um, a lot of aspects of philosophy, including political philosophy, but also like aesthetics. And, and you know, we've talked about this, Ali, you know, as part of that with, with a kind of individualist spirit um, and how do you think about identity? You know, are there more people who are going to embrace like seasonality as this marker of like, I only eat certain foods at certain times or I just don't care. You know, I try to shift and, and learn to like exist in a different way. At the same time, you'll have people who double down on, you know, full rad lib norm core f- friends, uh, the show, you know, it's just like, I'm, I'm buying whatever I want all year and I'll just have to pay more for it and I'll have to, it's more affecting my budget and not really my sense of self, my sense of gustation, right? Like taste and, and my, my sense of being in a larger environment that's linked, you know, on and on through supply chains to places around the world. Um, and I think those are interesting kind of philosophical questions, the kinds of things that I feel like you and I think about that are a little different than the, there's, they're both interesting, right? I think the specific, will this co- type of company work or will this commodity cost way more or disappear? Super interesting. But I think there's also this weird philosophical dimension around like what it means to have a normal experience of eating. Have we ever had a yeah. normal experience, yeah. you know? So, so that's a great question. Uh, and then like going back to our, our, you know, the topic of just indoor growing in general, and, you know, folks that are that that do think about how, um, you know, just, I guess, quote unquote, like ethical buying, like, you know, mm-hmm. am I buying mm-hmm. that grass fed milk or beef or am I just not even doing animal products because of the ethical stuff? Um, am I buying things from the local farmers market that are in season, blah, 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 all that other stuff. Um, but I wonder if anybody specifically buys indoor um, grown herbs or produce to support them, you know, like, like how there is this cultural shift of like, Oh, I want to do good, you know, quote unquote good. Um, and I want to support this thing. Is that same thing happening for the indoor farms? Like, Oh, this is grown hydroponically. I want to support this hydroponic company, you know, like, Oh, look at this beautiful head of butter crunch lettuce or whatever it is, or this like, you know, basil that was grown indoors. Do I, do I specifically want to, support this and yeah and i guess that's that's the other thing of of um you know the 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 ethical or the environmental aspects of growing indoors like how much how much has it been like greenwashing if if they're still like you know using up all this energy that comes from um the main energy stream which is mostly you know via gas and all this other stuff um, so I, yeah, I don't know. Um, just, yeah. just thoughts 
just throwing well throwing stuff out there yeah i mean it's kind of like the identity of the shopper the consumer that's linked to this idea of the identity of the producer and, and thinking that it's normal to grow food indoors and trying to normalize that from a strategic you know marketing position as um not just an option but also like the best option it's the tastiest it's the most ethical mm-hmm. those are all um really interesting. They're, they'd be called boundary objects in social science. They're things that are in formation we can study right now, yeah. only because these companies are so new and they're still kind of uh, enjoying this up and down, mostly down recently of, you know, <laughs> existing and, and being able to, to sort of proffer these goods. Um, and some other companies, as, as you point out, you know, maybe Smallhold, maybe Bowery keep going and they pr- provide those counterexamples of, okay, here's, here's a case where identity was forged around this, both in terms of laborers, the, the people selling the kind of vision and also shoppers looking for those products. And over time, viewing them as normal and viewing them as, as positive. And, and we can study that and, and very, to a very small degree. I mean, um, I've done some of that and my colleagues like Maya Zedin and, and Garrett Broad have done that as well of asking shoppers, like, do you know this was grown indoors? Why did you buy it? Did, what do you think about this claim? What do you think about that claim, right? And so well, we expect to see more of those studies if this stuff continues. One interesting thing is like the whole sector might kind of go away. Yeah. Um, probably we, we're not going to like lose every greenhouse, right? But all the major sunless farms, you could imagine just saying, you know, eh, it doesn't really make money. Even if we're going cannabis, it's just, you can still grow it in a greenhouse and it's still, you know, cheaper. It's the US, there's, there's land, whatever. So you could imagine a world 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm not saying this will happen, but it would be interesting from our perspective of like sitting kind of right beside these industries where like it really would be this like, history you know it'd be a recent history as opposed to an active thing in formation that we know friend we have friends who like work at these companies right mm. um if they all go away it's just going to be um yeah that was like a, an experiment that failed and you can see that with other things that have happened um even within you know industrial modernity i mean there have been industries that, that rose and fell that didn't go anywhere you, you know that some classic examples would be like electric cars were invented at the basically the same time as special cars and like didn't take off yeah. for a variety of reasons um, now you're seeing this push to kind of reverse that and, oh, you know, what'll happen to all of the factories. It's not just the car makers, but also the people who make all the parts for everything related to the petrol industry. And how do you get all those people new training and new jobs? And so it's sort of like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, I have this fondness for indirect, not cause I think it's necessarily like the best answer to everything, but I think it's just a really interesting case of a lot of people who meant well, maybe getting caught up in their own hype to some degree. Some of them, again, might have nailed it and good for them. And then a lot of, and then there are definitely people doing greenwashing and kind of just riding the wave of, you know, this seems like a thing I could get investment for. Um, and you, you see this snowball effect of, okay, it goes from, it was just sci-fi and then there's a whole bunch of these farms and now, yeah, they're just one by one all going bankrupt. And it's it's just, it's frankly just really weird to have lived through it, you yeah. know, kind of. Um, and maybe you feel the same way because, you, again, you know a lot of these folks as well, so. Um, we can come back to the subject, but I, I think this at least lays out that it's it's like one of the things you and I have, have been discussing in between seasons three and four of Fields. Yes. And yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Station plug. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. Yeah. And also hopefully throughout this new season, season four, um, you know, this topic will come up and, and again and, and, and we'll see how it even changes throughout the next couple of months. Um, right. Yeah. Cause it's already changed so much within us studying it and being around it in general. So yeah, much to still think about <laughs> and discuss. We'll see where it goes. Uh, I do like those Oishi strawberries, not a rep for the company. Mm. They're really expensive though, but um, 
Well, they're not that bad. But um, yeah, CBD. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, that's also just one last thought. I've, I've always been impressed because um, a lot of people have presented very valid criticisms of intergrowing broadly construed from the very beginning of my researching it. And I've been very, um, as a you know, eco-socialist, like amenable to the critiques with the exception that a lot of people have told me this stuff doesn't taste good. And from the very first time I tried it, most of these companies, they were growing really, really tasty food. Um, I don't think we're going to lose that. I think you can achieve those results outside. It's just, it may actually be that, you know, again, in some other alternate physics universe where like the money makes sense, it uses slightly less um, electricity, right? Or someone invents some super light. Um, there is a world where like this stuff floods the market because it just tastes a little better. And if it comes down in price and it's about the same as field grown, then at least for like that when you really want to taste greens and salad, you're buying the indoor stuff, right? I don't yeah. know that that'll happen, but or, it's just something that's always been on my mind about like, oh yeah, it actually tastes pretty good. Well, where, where I mean, I think about Farm One and who are they selling to? They're selling mm-hmm. these, you know, um, interesting herbs to tasting restaurants. So, you know, where is it going to, like, you know, if you have those high-end chefs being like, oh my God, this tastes amazing. Yes, you should pay $100 for four plates, small plates for one leaf, you know, like, yeah, then, yeah. I yeah. I mean, exa- and that goes to the whole class yep. thing, you know, yep. the, the rich get Arabica coffee and farm one uh, curated plates and the poor can whatever eat um, leather grown from mushroom roots. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, we're not there yet. And, and farm one itself to their credit have tried to, to change that dynamic quite a bit, but Mushrooms I think there's all the more reason roots. <laughs> Well, I was trying to be colloquial with the word mycelium. We say mycelium a lot on this show. Uh, But yeah, we should have on, you know, folks from Farm One as well and and all these farms and give them a chance to kind of voice their their thoughts on on this rise and fall narrative and whether that's even, maybe maybe it's the wrong narrative, you know, just again, as someone who who looks at, has looked at some of these historical trends um, and, you know, uh, I'm I'm not sure that this is the end of anything other than, yeah, maybe some companies... um, couldn't cut it but yeah that said let's figure it out uh we'll we'll get to the you bottom of this somehow figure it out. Melissa. <laughs> next four months the Mulder and scully <laughs> of high high-priced lettuce growing regimes uh yeah well with that i think this is a good intro to season four we're gonna keep talking and invite some some people to join us and um keep having fun over here at field so thank you thank you to everyone who listens uh thanks to liam and heritage radio network uh, for allowing us to make the show. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.